As most of you will know, I grew up in a family of faith. My grandparents, my parents have all modelled to me what it is to follow Jesus. It's natural for me then to read the Bible with them, to attend church with them, to talk about issues in the world from a Christian perspective. This is the way it has always been, and I'm very grateful for that. But when I think back, there have been moments when I have been profoundly moved by the faith of my family. Occasions where just for a minute, I've stopped taking it for granted and have seen firsthand what Jesus means to them <coughs> as individuals. And more often than not, these moments have come in times of trial and they have always involved prayer. I remember when my sister-in-law was in labour. It had been going on for hours and the medics were getting concerned. And Emily and I were staying with my parents at the time so we could be nearby. And I remember mum and dad waking us up in the night so that we could pray for her. And I remember listening to my parents, particularly my dad, lift up my sister-in-law before the Lord. My dad doesn't normally say very much. His faith is a quiet and a simple one. But in that prayer, it was fervent and deep. His petitions brought tears to my eyes. I remember also when my grandmother was lying in hospital in the last hours of her life. And again, the family were gathered, mum and dad and my uncle, alongside my brother and Emily and I. And I remember again listening to my mum pray for her own mother. I remember hearing the words of faith pour forth. Her love of Jesus was so strong. Her dependence on him was total. And I remember my mum entrusting my grandmother into God's gracious care with the utter assurance that it would be okay, that she was going to be with him. Now, as I say, I've always been in a family of faith. But in these moments of pain and trial, I've seen the true depth of it. I've seen their fervent love of the Lord and the sincerity of their trust in him. And I think you might recognise this too. I think listening to a believer you love pray is one of the most powerful things in the world. It's a moment where you see their heart laid bare. As our passage begins, we suddenly find ourselves listening in to a loved one praying. Praying with and for his family. That person is Jesus. Now this should not be a surprise to us. The Gospels tell us that Jesus did this all the time. He prayed in quiet times and busy times. He prayed in good times and bad times. He prayed long prayers of devotion and short arrow prayers in times of a crisis. Jesus prayed in the morning and at noon and at night. He prayed before every meal. He really did live in a rhythm of prayer. Yet very few of those prayers are recorded. And of those that are, none of them are as long as this. Jesus really did want us to listen into this one. He wanted us to be caught up in its power and to learn 
from its content. For Jesus, turning to his father in prayer was the most natural thing in the world. And that is how he begins. The opening address is, Father. Father. Just sense the intimacy and the confidence in that one word. Later in this prayer, Jesus will refer to him as Holy Father and Righteous Father. Jesus always recognised who his father was. He knew that he was the sovereign creator of the universe, the holy, the powerful, the all-majestic one. But still he could approach him in the same way that a child does to their parent. And the incredible news of the gospel is that we as human beings are invited into this same intimate relationship with God. But why is Jesus praying on this occasion? Well, Jesus begins, Father, the hour has come. Jesus is praying because he knows the climax of his ministry on earth is now nigh. The cross lies only hours away. The arresting soldiers are already en route. And Jesus knows full well the pain and the difficulty that is ahead. And it's only natural that he reaches out for help. Now it's in the intimacy and the solemnity of this moment as Jesus prays with all his heart, that we get this privileged glimpse into his soul. We get to see what is most important to him. We get to see what is foremost on his mind. We get to see the reality of his relationship with his father in much the same way that I did with my parents in those prayers I just mentioned. The reason that Jesus allowed this prayer to be made known, the reason he invited the disciples into it and allowed them to record it, is because he wanted us to be inspired by it. He wanted us to see his heart, to see his values, so that slowly but surely they become our values too. Jesus spoke this prayer so that in a very real way it can become our prayer as well. Over the next few moments, I want us to do two things. I want us to explore the key themes of this prayer, to discover what it was that was most important to Jesus. And then I'd like us to try and construct a model or a template from this prayer to guide and help us when we pray today. So let's begin by exploring what Jesus says. Right away in verses 1 to 5, It is revealed to us that Jesus' deepest concern in life was his Father's glory. His priority was always to see that God the Father received the honour that he was due. The next week or so will be the most dramatic in all of human history. Jesus will lay down his innocent life on the cross. Three days later, he will rise from the dead. Forty days after that, he will ascend back into heaven as Lord and King. Through these upcoming events, Jesus will finally be recognised as who he really is. He is the Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. The cross will not be the defeat of Jesus. It will be his throne. It will be his moment of crowning glory. But as that glory is revealed, Jesus states here 
that he wants all the praise and honour to be passed on to his father. Listen again to the very first line of this prayer in its entirety. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. What we have here is mutual submission. What we have here is the most loving of relationships. The father loves the son and seeks to bring him glory. The son loves the father and seeks to return it all back again. Just sense the intimacy and the trust and the faithfulness between the two of them being expressed here. As the prayer goes on, Jesus also states that he wants his father to be glorified in all that his death and resurrection will achieve. And what will it achieve? (coughs) It will achieve the granting of eternal life to all God's people. And in these words, we get an astonishing insight into the quality of life that we gain from knowing Jesus. This is verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The death and resurrection of Jesus means that ordinary people like you and I can truly get to know God. We can truly relate to him. We can come into his presence. We can appreciate his goodness and we will do this world without end. And as we experience the joy and the privilege of knowing God, Jesus asks that all the glory will go to his Father. There is no doubt that this has been the one aim of the whole of Jesus' life on earth. In everything he has done, he has sought to be obedient. He has sought to do all that the Father gave him to do. And now as the hour of climax approaches, Jesus prays for the help required to see it through to the end. The strength to remain obedient through the greatest of trials. He wants the Father to help him keep his eyes on the prize until it's all over and he sits back down by the Father's side in glory itself. Jesus is about to boldly march into the darkest valley imaginable and he's doing it for his Father's glory. He asks the Father to bring him out again on the other side and again, it's for the Father's glory. Everything, absolutely everything revolves around this. Jesus' deepest concern in life was that the Father gets the worship and the honour that he deserves both now in his sacrifice and in the praise of his people for all eternity. And this is why Jesus makes it the very first topic of his prayer. And as we listen in on this holy moment, we're left in no doubt that this should become our priority too. Our chief end in life is to glorify God and to do that through worship, And through living a life of obedience and service right to the end, just like Jesus did, no matter what trials come our way. Jesus asked for help to do this. Surely then, so should we. 
The second thing that Jesus prays for are his disciples. And this is found in verses 6 to 19. It's important for us to remember that Jesus has spent the last three years of his life investing everything that he had into these dear friends of his. He knew that the Father had placed them into his responsibility and he had discharged that responsibility as lovingly as he could. And now the time has come for Jesus to leave them behind and so he takes the opportunity to entrust them back into the Father's care knowing that his father loves the disciples just as much as he did. Interestingly here, Jesus marks out what makes a true disciple. Verse 8, I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Disciples are people who have accepted God's word as the truth. And who have believed in Jesus as the chosen one of God. They've put all of their trust in him as God's son, the saviour and messiah. And by doing such, disciples are set apart. They're set apart from the rest of the world. The language Jesus uses here is that of holiness. Through faith they have been made holy, just as the father is holy. You see, whereas the world around us totally rejects God and embraces the darkness, followers of Jesus accept God and walk into his light. And this step of faith requires a determined choice. We all live in the world, a world that is dark and foreboding, but we don't have to allow the world to go on defining who we are. We can choose to stand out and stand up for the Lord Jesus And he will give us the strength we need to do this. But as we have seen many times over the last few weeks, as we've read Jesus's final words, as soon as we choose to stand out from the rest of the world, we will come under attack. The world gets jealous and tries to pull us back into the darkness. And so recognizing that threat, Jesus spends the next section of his prayer praying For the protection of his friends. Verse 11. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. (coughs) Holy Father, protect them from evil. Protect them from the world's deceitful schemes. And Jesus knows that there are different ways that this protection can be realized and developed. So he goes on to pray for them as well. First of all, protection from evil will be furthered if the disciples remain united. So Jesus prays, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name so that they may be one as we are one. The devil always seeks to divide and conquer, to break down the community of faith. Whereas we stand together, we can resist his wicked schemes. Second, Jesus prays that his friends may go on knowing joy. And he asked the Father to give them joy. A joy that no amount of hostility can quench. Verse 13, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
And finally, Jesus prays that the Father might help the disciples to remain dedicated to the truth. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You see, Jesus is sad to leave his friends behind. But he wants them to remain in the world because he's got a great purpose for them. From now on, it's through the disciples that the world will get to hear about Jesus. But to do this work of service unscathed in a hostile place, the disciples must hold on to God's truth. They must keep a firm grip on the teaching of Jesus and the promises that he's made to them. And Jesus asks his father to help them do that in the battle of life. And again, I think there is a reason that Jesus lets us listen in to this prayer. He wants these instincts and desires to be in our hearts as well. As believers today, we too need to remain alert to the battle that we are in, the, the challenges that lay around us every day. We too need to pray for protection and strength. We need to pray for healing when we've been wounded by the world around us. We need to pray for a passion for God's truth to grow within us, for a love and a hunger for his word to deepen in our hearts. <coughs> You see, in life, there are only ever two options. We're either getting closer to God or we're moving away. Because the hostile world we live in never lets us stand still. Jesus wants us to be growing closer to him and his father all the time. And still today, we need to be praying for that. And praying for protection and help day by day. And now we come to the final section of this great prayer. And without doubt, this is the most breathtaking part of all. Imagine some great figure from the past. Maybe someone you really respect and admire. Maybe it's Shakespeare or Dickens or Martin Luther King or Elizabeth Fry. I don't know who your heroes of history are, but just imagine them now. And then imagine... That historians have just made a great discovery. As they've been sifting through old manuscripts, they've come across a letter. <coughs> a letter from that great person themselves. And incredibly, that letter is written to you. All these years later. Can you possibly imagine that? How would you feel if that was true? Well, incredibly... That is what we have here. Jesus finishes his prayer by talking to his father about you and about me. That's right. Let's try and take that in. Just hours before the cross, knowing the horror that lay ahead, Jesus took the time to think and pray for us. In verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for future believers, the church that is still to come, including us on island in 2023. You see, Jesus knows how things will work. 
His disciples will spread the good news around the Mediterranean region. And then the gospel will be passed on and on and on and down and down and down through the generations. And when you think about it, the church is never more than one generation away from extinction. All it would take is for that one generation not to pass on the word of God. But that has never happened. And it never will. So Jesus here prays for the generations to follow. And he has one great longing for us. What is it? It is unity. I pray that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you. The unity that Jesus prays for is a deep unity, not just one of outward appearances. Neither is this a unity just powered by human effort alone. It's a unity that grows out of our relationship with Jesus and is aided by the Father through the Holy Spirit. But that said, it is a unity that we still need to work on. Surely that is again why Jesus lets us listen into this prayer. He wants us to hear his heart for unity, so we begin to work at it ourselves. As with any human relationship, unity cannot be forced. We have to work at it every day. We have to seek to understand those around us. We have to choose to forgive quickly and apologise ourselves. We have to reconcile thoroughly when needed to. We are to recognise that if we are one in faith with a brother or sister, there can be no final reason why we cannot be one with them in life and worship. When Jesus was praying for his disciples a few verses ago, we found that unity helps protect us in a hostile world. But here, Jesus' thoughts are dominated by mission. He prays for us to be united so that The world may believe that you have sent me, verse 21. And then again in verse 23, he repeats it. He calls for unity so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus directly links our unity to the mission of the church. Let me try and give you an example of the power of this. Have any of us ever been away on holiday, maybe to a different part of the UK or maybe a different country altogether, and gone to church there? We would have found ourselves among Christians that we'd never met before, Christians from different backgrounds, traditions, maybe even different languages to us. And yet, as we've worshipped with them, we've had this strong sense that we were family. That we were with our brothers and sisters. That even though we'd never been in this place before, we were home. Such was the love and the welcome. I hope somewhere at some time you have experienced that. And let me tell you, this only happens in the church. Nowhere else is there a human community that is united across such barriers of race and custom and gender and class and age. And in a bitterly divided world, that united community is becoming increasingly attractive. 
When people see love like that, it stops them in their tracks because they don't experience it themselves. It makes them ask questions. And when they ask them, we get a chance to talk about Jesus. Jesus really believes that a truly united church makes the love of God visible. It makes it tangible. It makes it more persuasive to those who don't know it yet. And that is why Jesus prays for unity here. Christian unity is one of the most important (coughs) ways that we engage in mission in our world today. And that then takes us back to where this whole prayer began. Jesus wants more people to get to know him. He wants more people to see his glory so he can then pass on their praise and worship to his father. Jesus came into the world because he loves the world. He's about to die on the cross to save the world. He wants people of all generations to know this love for themselves through the work of the Spirit among his people. And therefore, still today, we are to pray for the church, to commit ourselves to praying for unity with our brothers and sisters, to pray for our church's ongoing mission and outreach. It's time we finish. I'd like to argue that this prayer gives us a breathtaking insight into the heart of Jesus. In this moment of crisis, in this climactic hour of his life, Jesus reveals his deepest concerns, the greatest desires of his heart. Above everything else, Jesus wants glory to go to his Father for his disciples to be protected in the world and for the church to be united in its mission. And I really believe that Jesus has let us listen into this prayer because he wants it to become our prayer too. So let's use this as a model for our own prayers. Let us start with praise and adoration, seeking to bring glory to God, worshipping him for who he is and what he's done. Let us try every day to give God glory. Let us remember to pray for our own protection and growth, recognising the challenges of the life that we live and desiring to know more and more of God in our hearts. And finally, Let us regularly intercede for the church to pray for its unity and its life, to pray for its services and outreach, to pray that it grows and bring hope to many more people. This is to be our model to pray and live by. And it's the model that comes straight from the heart of Jesus himself.